if you're bringing in a million dollars a year, you're probably spending what five k a month on just rent. Because mm-hmm. if you're spending, if you're making a meal and it's not a service, like it's a a tangible good that you're selling, then there's a brick and mortar. If there's a brick and mortar, then there's a monthly overhead. Mm-hmm. So to be a millionaire, you got to make this much money every single month Facts. through the drought seasons. Every business has a drought season. So somebody may look at a millionaire and then look at someone who's making $250,000 a year and you immediately think the millionaire is the one that's making the most money. That's not necessarily true. Because mm-hmm. if the millionaire is taking home 100000 at the end of the year after everything's said and done, Versus the $250,000 person is taking home 200000 a year. Look who's making more money. Yo, back again with another episode of Attractive Mindset. And today's guest, this man, ever since I first met him years ago, super humble individual, super smart individual, the level that he's been able to add to the black community in general, but also to just his personal growth and just knowing him over time when it comes to being an artist, just creating, 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 and adding just that value to the community in general. I can't stress it enough, guys. I'm going to let him introduce himself, but we got. Mr. Marcus. Yeah. What up, what up? Thanks for having me. Appreciate you, Rich. Of course, of course. Uh, it's very cool to see you doing podcasts that are like around subject matter that's not spoken on enough. Mm-hmm. So um definitely an honor to have me here. Appreciate you. Uh I'm Mark Delmont. Uh a lot of people refer to me as Art Love Trap. That's my music alias, but as a fine artist and contemporary artist, I'm Mark Delmont. Okay, okay. So how yeah. did you, you know, let's let's start it right off. How did you get into the name Art Love Trap? Man, damn. That's a heavy one. Uh I, I feel like a lot of people kind of just pick names off of like what sounds cool. Uh I went through like some I had like a traumatic experience. I got in a really bad car accident back in 2011 where I was hit head on with a Astro van. It was like 50 to 50. It was Somebody's supposed to die, basically. Mm. And um, I had like a near-death experience, whatever. Uh, hit my head on a windshield, had like memory issues for a little while. And I was really just trying to figure out what I wanted to be and what I wanted to stand for. And I decided to like talk about the things through my name. So I chose art because I felt like that was what I had. That was the only thing I had attachment to after the accident. It's like, Art was it. Like, it's either I was like drawing some stuff or I was listening to music. It almost seemed like the world went silent uh, after that happened. And then love, obviously, that's like the only thing we have a huge abundance of Mm -hmm. in ourselves as people. And then trap because I'm a black man in America. I feel that. Yeah. That name definitely makes sense now. Thank you for definitely sharing that. For sure. You know, uh, just give us a little background on just your upcoming. How did you scale from, you know, being a junior to just growing up and and being like, you know, I want to pursue entrepreneur versus, you know, the necessary, you know, go to college, get a degree, get a standard nine to five job, get a standard, you know, just the standard. How what made you break from that standard? Like, give us a little history on that. So I got to give like a lot of credit to my pops. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been an entrepreneur since all I could remember. Like the year I was born, 
he started a, a business because he was just like, yo, I got a son. I, I got to provide the families bigger jobs, just not enough. So he decided to start a company when I was born. And um, I've always seen him be an entrepreneur. It's like, you know, you, you, you either you see your pops play ball or you see your pops sell dope or whatever the case yeah. is. You just like it's now normal. I've always seen my father working over 60 hours a week, coming back home, working on fabrications in the yard, working in the shed, going back to work, working just ridiculous hours and coming home and crunching his own numbers. I remember I used to like mess around in his invoice books because I thought it was like sketch paper. He'd be like, yo, you can't write on that. <laughs> Those are my invoice papers. And I'm like, all right, okay, I guess. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like, it became my dad, the entrepreneur, instead of just my dad. Like it's, it. it became a part of his personality. And uh, you know how we don't try to be like our fathers, but we just end up being like our fathers in some way, shape or form. I, in a sense, indoctrined like his habits as an entrepreneur. And like, as corny as it sounds, the first thing I did was sell candy. You feel me? So it was like, I remember I would go to the candy lady next door and I would see how much money she was making. I was like, yo, she got me over here digging in the couch for quarters. I might as well be selling candy. Like, what's the markup on this? <laughs> they go to a dollar store, go buy a big bag of candy go flip it, whatever. I was like, okay, I think I like this. So I think I think that's probably where the whole entrepreneurship thing started. The candy lady. God. My dad played a big role, but like it didn't translate until I saw the candy lady. That's a that's a good piece of information that you just had. You could have somebody who's typically like this role model figure for you the whole time, but it won't stick to you or translate till you see it from somebody else. Right. In your ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You know, because we you know, as growing up as kids, we feel like we're separate from our parents. Like, yes, I'm your son, but like I'm in your world, but I'm not really in your world. You know what I'm saying? Like you're doing the grown up thing, whatever. So going to the candy lady was like a part of our like freedom. We will go take our little money and then go be consumers somewhere. So like that was the real thing for us. You feel me? So to see that it was. And then black people all around, I mean, like, I just always seen people hustling around me. Like, I grew up next to the dope house, and mm-hmm. I would have dudes cutting yard for money across the street. It just seemed like everybody was just trying to get it in their own way. So, I, I shout out to just black people. Influence. Yeah. Okay, okay. And so, you from South Florida? Yeah, I'm from Carroll City. Okay, okay. And so do you feel like just even just like you said that the environment of being from South Florida versus anywhere else in the United States definitely yeah. impacted you on how you developed? Yeah, I mean I mean South Florida, Miami specifically, uh I, I feel like it's like the elbow of the United States. Like everybody got to go there to go somewhere, you know what mm. I mean? Like if you come into the country, you probably come into Miami or you going through Miami in some way, shape or form. You know, that's where all the Caribbeans go to escape. So it's the I feel like the Caribbeans is like some of the hardest working region in the world because everybody takes from them and nobody pours into them. True. You know, so uh, Haitians, Jamaicans, Cubans, Puerto Ricans is like they really don't have 
a huge surplus or a government that's really looking after them. So they really got to get it. So the fact that all those people live in this place, it makes sense that there's so many entrepreneurs in South Florida because mm. all the Caribbeans is here. You know? That's true. Okay. And I, and I, I, I just, it forced me to be diverse because of the amount of people that are around. It's just different people. You know, like you look at Miami, yeah, you got Haitians. You look in Miramar, you got Jamaicans. You look in, you look in Fort Lauderdale, you got Haitians and Trini. You look in Weston, you got Jamaicans. You look in Miami Lakes, you got Dominicans, <laughs> Puerto Ricans. You look at Hialeah, Doral, Cubans, Venezuelans. Like they got their own sector yeah. everywhere. You feel me? Like it's the little Caribbean. South Florida is like little Caribbean for it. Nah, facts. And oh, so yeah. you said the entrepreneurship side definitely came from your father. And so you, as we know you, is are definitely an artist in both, mm -hmm. you know, the music realm, but also in the art world as well. You right. know, and so how did you develop that skill? When did you like, you know, realize like, hey, you know, I'm good at this and I want to take this to the next level? I feel like we were all in a rap group in middle school. Yeah, I don't. I can't speak for everybody, but uh, I feel like a lot of us was like low key rapping in middle school, beating on tables and shit. So that's definitely where that kind of came from. Uh, where I was like, I want to do this. Yeah, but w before that, when my mom used to like take me to school and stuff, she would play jazz. Mm. So like, I fell in love with jazz through that, and then she was always playing like Sade. Maxi Priest, Maxwell, Bob Marley. Classics. Just smooth shit. You know, Man. my mom always played the smooth shit. So, like, I had, like, a huge influence just from, like, the music that was always in my house, just, like, on some pedestrian shit. I don't really come from artists. Okay. But they had a really good palette of music. You know, like, my mom's listened to the smooth shit. My sister listened to R&B. My dad listened to, like, Afro-Cuban shit. And my brother listened to, like, Atlanta shit. Mm. So, like, I had a nice little palette as far as like music goes. And then uh, Caribbean people are just stylish, feel me? So like I would learn how to dress from just looking at them. I was just a looking ass kid, to be honest. So I was just like, <laughs> yeah, like what you doing? Like, how can I get a miniature version of that? Like anytime I saw my dad with like a fit on, I'd be like, yo, they ain't had that in a size seven? Yeah. Like, what's up, you know? So <laughs> I guess just looking at what we had around us, I feel like I come from a a potentially artistic place. Okay. You know, like the palette was good. Nobody was really encouraging for me to make art or make music, but it's like, it was good music around in the house. Nice little CD collection, cassettes, stuff like that. Sound system was always fire. There was like a sound system in every room, low key. Mm. Like, you know, the wired speakers and yeah. shit. Like there was always like an arrangement in every area. So like I always had ways to listen to music. And I spent a lot of time at home alone. So I'll just be blasting shit in the crib while nobody was around. So that's the best time to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was okay. cool. I done blew hella speakers in the crib <laughs> before anybody found out. Okay, okay. On on Fourth of July. You're like, man, what the hell happened to this sub? It was just working. I blew that shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, yeah. so what was your first uh leap of faith into the entrepreneur realm outside of the candy business like where it really got serious like okay this is this is what i'm using to you know take care of my livelihood in college i we're not gonna talk about no like 
street shit because I feel like that's not even necessary. In college, uh, I was I was uh, I went to Kentucky, and I just couldn't get no damn money. Like it was just hard to get money mm-hmm. in Kentucky. It wasn't no you know street shit around. It was like it was so isolated. You know, like I couldn't like hustle nothing. So uh, I started cutting hair. Mm. So I'll cut the basketball team's hair, football team hair, and I'll cut their hair outside my apartment on the um on the porch. So I I think that was like my first time like, damn, I gotta I gotta you know. Uh, and you just learned that, or you went to school? Nah, I ain't go to school. I was just like, man, I'm a. What you want to fade? Like, oh, damn. <laughs> I used to practice on myself, mm-hmm. and then um it was like I saw everybody was looking rough. So I was like, man, I'm going to just learn how to cut. And then I had a roommate that was like, no, I had a neighbor that was like down to let me cut his shit so I could learn how to fade. And he was like, he was like my test dummy, mm. a dude named Doug. He was just like, all right, sure, whatever. And Damn. then I got nice after like a week or two. So I started cutting hair consistently. Supply and demand. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think that was my first time like really like reading the room and like providing a service for the first time, you know? I Got thought that it. was like, okay, I'm looking around. I don't see nothing. I see a, I see a, de- a demand. So I was like, okay, let me supply. Okay. And I so- think that was the first legit step. You know what I'm saying? Obviously, I didn't have a barber's license. So yeah. how legit is that? Yeah. But in college, I feel like everything goes in college. Of course. Yeah. It, yeah those tactics are what build up your personality to get to where you are now. You know what I'm saying? Right, like right, right. The early stages and all of that matters because it's it's a mesh of our personalities, you know, whether it's the street shit, whether it's the college shit, whether right. it's, you know, just life in general, you know, it takes us to this level where it's like the version of me that you see is so many different things and right. people love to keep us, you know, labeled to these categories especially black people mm-hmm. you know you start rapping and you got to be a rapper you can't be anything else you know right. you start doing whatever category and that's what you get labeled in and when you start doing something else who he think he is or what they think they got going on right. or, you know things like that and so what's the next step from you doing here you know mm-hmm. then you get to the next level what, what does that look like uh well after college i got injured tore some shit Lost my scholarship, came back home, and um, that's when the accident happened mm. around that time frame. And then um, I started cutting music, and then I got into a business venture with my partner at the time, and we started running like art space, and, like a photography studio. Uh, we'd do like art parties, block parties, all kind of shit. Like it was like every week and that was like a big jump because it was like damn okay let me apply the things that i know how to do into something that i love Mm -hmm. and that was like the first time doing that running art central miami that was like a nice yeah that was a nice jump because we had to remodel the whole place from scratch Mm. Um, i used to like remodel homes and stuff that was like a little side hustle but it wasn't really a business it was more like I'm gonna do this because it works and I'm good with my hands type type deal. But this was the first time that I was like, okay, I got a place of business. There's an address, there's an LLC, there's money in, money out, you know, promotion, placement, doing things that like don't necessarily make money, but can bring traction. 
just like the sacrifice of an entrepreneur. Yeah. That was my first time really like doing all those things, like really applying all the things that I know into something. Okay. And so there's, there's definitely going to be a lot of like beginner entrepreneurs watching this. And so give them a little history or a little background, a deeper in-depth, you know, analysis of how you come up with solutions to problems, especially when you're starting a business and you don't necessarily have that college degree to rely on or somebody else that knows what they're doing in it to rely on. And you just got to create. Well, I feel like there's a lot of different ways to answer that question, but I'm going to answer it the best way I know how, which is a very biased opinion. I know that there's a lot of different ways to go about it. But personally, I feel like if you're going to start a business, you should start something about something you're actually passionate about because there were going to be hard times. Like there's going to be months you're not making anything. You got this really screwed up term called the red. And sometimes it can last two years, three years, maybe even five years because scaling up and making sure you're profitable is just a really tough task to do. To have a successful business is hard. I'm not going to lie and tell you it's easy. It's, it's not easy. You got competition. That is a huge factor. You got yourself and your team, which is a big earth factor. And if there's kinks in your armor, you're going to feel it like times 10. And you're going to, if you're paying for rent somewhere, you're going to feel it even more. So the first and foremost, you need to be passionate about the business because that's what's going to take you and float you through the hardest times. Mm. Like you could have like a really rough season, but man, I love this. I love this. So we're going to get through it because I love it. Now take love and passion out of that equation and just say, oh, I, we had a hard season. Now everybody want to quit. Cause you don't love it. Right. So I feel like that is like the first piece. And uh, the second piece I would say is be practical, you know, like to be a big dreamer is beautiful. I feel like we should always dream, but like be real with yourself. Do you think that you could come into this business and do give it 40 hours? Like you gave a job 40 hours. Cause if you can't give this 40 hours, like you gave your job 40 hours, you might be wasting your time. Facts. Because any entrepreneur will tell you they work harder than a nine to fiver because we got open hours and then we got closed hours. When you work a nine to five, you punch that clock, you go home. But the business is still running, even though you're not there. Now, when you run that business, you counting spoons, cups, napkins, toilet papers. And that's just like shit that sits still. We're not even talking about things that are in motion, like in this space. You got cameras, C-stands, lights, diffusers, power supplies, sandbags. Like, yo, all these things got to really be an understanding of like, is this going to help me make my work more efficiently? And do I need more? Facts. You know, like those are real conversations and that's in like every business. So it's like being practical and like keeping it a buck with yourself is really going to save yourself a lot of headache. Okay. There's okay. nothing wrong with being a big dreamer because, like, anything's possible. I mean, you really can do, you could scale, you want to sell microphone pop filters. Like, there's a market. People need it. And if you make it the right way and it's dope and it's readily available and it's not hard for people to get to it, it can work. You want to sell leopard print draws exclusively. Like, there's a whole ecosystem for that. There's really a demand for anything. It's just 
you want to supply it and can you scale it? Or if you can't scale it, are you comfortable with the ROI of staying low in your scale? Because that's a form of success too. Just being a millionaire is like, somebody may say, oh, I want to be a millionaire. Okay. If you want to be a millionaire, then know you got millionaire bills. You know, like if you're bringing in a million dollars a year, you're probably spending what? 5k a month on just rent because mm-hmm. if you're spending if you're making a meal and it's not a service like it's a, a tangible good that you're selling then there's a brick and mortar if there's a brick and mortar then there's a monthly overhead mm-hmm. so to be a millionaire you got to make this much money every single month Facts. through the drought seasons every business has a drought season so somebody may look at a millionaire and then look at someone who's making $250,000 a year and you immediately think the millionaire is the one that's making the most money. That's not necessarily true. Because mm-hmm. if the millionaire is taking home 100000 at the end of the year after everything's said and done versus the $250,000 person is taking home 200000 a year, look who's making more money. Exactly. Maybe the two fifty guy or woman is just selling a service. They don't have an overhead. So now their ROI is bigger because they're not paying a bunch of money every month on just existing costs. So that's where the conversation of like, is this a practical play for you? Can you sustain? And like, there's nothing wrong with being cheap because like you're going to need it in the drought seasons. That's a practical conversation. It's like, oh, we had a killer month this month. Shit. We can go buy new equipment. Wrong. That's not even true. Because you may have a drought coming up and you got to prepare for the drought. So, yeah, that practical talk is like that's a that's a healthy space. So, and some people may say, oh, why are you talking so negative? No, it's not negative. That's why you got to have a team. Mm-hmm. The team got to have a dreamer. And a, a logical person so that they can balance each other. If you got a room full of dreamers, y'all going to drown. If you got a room full of logical people, you can't grow. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. You know, and that's, man, you don't know how excited that makes me to hear that because out of everybody that we've brought on the show so far, like getting that type of explanation, you know, we we haven't had that. And I like to tell people or I tell my coaching clients all the time, I say, yo, do you understand what the word intelligence means? And I say a lot of people don't understand business to a level that they could because they don't understand the word intelligence. Intelligence is broken into two words. You got the first one, which is intellect. And intellect is the left side of our brain, which is controlled by the R complex. Mm -hmm. And people have to really understand what the brain is and how the brain functions down into different systems. And so the R complex has all the logistics, the logical things, you know, the reason, all that type of stuff. And then the right side of our brain is that creativity. Mm -hmm. And that's controlled by the limbic system. And so when you mesh both of these together, you know, the word gents is a Greek, Latin you know, it comes from that and, and it turns into generate. And so generate, when you put them together, that's how they created the word intelligence, because intelligence is using both sides of your brains at the same time. Too often we have people that are left side of their brain did or right. right side of their brain did. And, and they don't know how to mesh those things together. When you find individuals and most CEOs yeah. do, do have this, and there's documentaries about it with, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos and, 
and Gates and all of them. And, you know, right. because they're they're able to innovatively bounce both of these off at the same time. And so that's when intelligence is used when they're both used together. And so right. you saying what you said of it's not you being negative, it's be it's you being realistic. That's yeah. that's real shit. Yeah, it got it's gotta happen. It's just like, yo, like if you got a dollar in your pocket, are you gonna go to the strip club? Mm -hmm. No. You ain't got it. So why are we being ridiculously and wastefully ambitious about something when we could just like stay home, plan, get it together again? The strip club is an analogy, but you get yeah, you of mean? course. Like, <laughs> what you know, work with what you got and like make them stretch, make a penny stretch. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing wrong with that because you could be charging up for like a really good season if you're like frugal. Exactly. Yeah. And so explain to us a little more about you know art love trap. You know, that yeah. that that personality of yourself, because, you know, there's and what I like to tell people, you know, I have I have two names. Right. You know, my first name, you know, my my given name is Darian. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot. Not a lot of people even know that, mm. you know, there's Darian and then there's Rich. Rich is my right. business personality. Rich is who everybody meets at first until they get to really know that that individual down in me. And I feel like that's somewhat of the same for you when it comes to you know, Mark Delmont and, right. and Art Love Trap. Yeah, yeah. Art Love Trap is essentially the dreamer. That's the one that's like, I don't really care about the number. I just want to make something and I want to have fun while I do it. And then Mark Delmont is like the more reserved, but like punctual and planned and like what I want to do with this thing. You know what I mean? So it's, okay. a, it's a balance for sure. But Art Love Trap is... A, it's kind of chilling right now. Mm -hmm. We're not we're not doing as much music as I used to do. I love music, but I've come to the understanding that music is for me. Mm. Um, before I was making music for everybody else, and now I make music for me. So like, if I choose to drop uh, an album, it's because I want to drop an album. It's not because I'm trying to make money. You know what I'm saying? Versus with like Mark Delmont, uh, that that's that's a more of a brand and and a platform in terms of like making art about black people mm. and telling our stories. So explain a little deeper on that to us. Like, you know, that, that brand, you know, you said something powerful with that. You, you are your brand. Right. And so marketing that, you know, what made you just stick to your name versus creating the alias? So like when I was going under art love trap, it was more so like, I wanted to create a layer between me and the world. And that was the whole use of the alias. Whereas with Mark Delmont, it's like it's the direct line. It's it's my it's my family name. And I, I wanted to essentially get back to the root and talk about like really where I'm from, the people that I stand for, the message I'm trying to get across. It's it's a little bit more homegrown. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to take that barrier down so that people could just like get to me for real. When I collaborate with brands or anything like that, like there, there's like there's a non-negotiable that I have to make art about black people. I don't care what brand it is. I don't care how big it is. But if you cool with wide noses and big lips, then we could work. Mm -hmm. If you got an issue with that, then I could suggest somebody for you. I may not be for you. Got so, it. Yeah, it's legacy. Mm -hmm. uh, growing up as a kid and now, I just feel like black and brown people are not represented properly or safely. Uh, and, and what I do is essentially make art about 
what I see and what I feel and not just what's popular or fetishized or fantasized. It's like, yo, this is what it is, what we deal with. Like, I recently just did a piece today before I came in and it's like 70s theme and it's for a sunglass company. And I was debating on like what features I wanted to put on a work. And I really just kind of just let my hand go and let my heart go and just made what I wanted to make. And like, I truly love it, man. It's like a, almost like a Bootsy Collins type of vibe. They got goals. They was like wearing silk. I think it's flies, Afro, you know, it looks like it's just so funky, you know? And, and I feel like I did not hold back on what I wanted to put in the work, regardless of who the variable was as a collaborator. Mm. And so. so when it comes to choosing, you know, how you want to represent a piece, do you have, you know, uh, other factors of artists that you, you know, you, you've been able to take things from over time, like influences kind of to influence your pieces? Yeah, I mean, I got a few artists that like I have one consistent artist that's in like. If I'm ever lost, I dive into their work. And that's uh, Oswaldo Giasumi. Mm -hmm. He's a painter and sculptor. Um, he mainly like exists in the cubism realm. On a music level, J. Cole, Kendrick Lamar. Like I got my own like references of like who I like to. I, I feel like they do it well and they do it with intent. And I never want to leave those two factors alone when I'm making art. I always want to make sure I'm doing it well and I'm always doing it intentional. So it may not be just those people that I name, but whoever I'm looking into, I want to make sure that it's dope and it's intentional. That way it could trickle down into my work. Got it. And so walk us through the process of, you know, building a piece from scratch. And so conception of idea into how long it would take to, you know, create this piece and then eventually even into getting it into like exhibits and things like that. Um, so when I'm looking at like making new work, I also, I always want to think about where's it going to go? Where is this going? Right. If I know that it's a piece that is going to be printed really big scale, I'm going to do something very dramatic and almost like play on the scale. If I know something that is going to stay on a phone and it won't leave the screen of a phone, I may be a little bit more dialed in because I know the phone's getting held up to the face or whatnot. Mm. So like perspective is like the first conversation. How drastic do I want to be? Do I want to be pinhole or do I want to be fisheye you know mm. or landscape? I want to show real estate or whatever it is. That's like the first conversation with myself. The next thing is, uh, what do I want to feel? Like, what do I want to feel? Do I want to be mad when I look at this piece? Do I want to feel liberated when I look at this piece? Do I want to laugh? Do I want to feel confident, cocky? The mood is the next conversation. Uh, palette is important to me too. Like, uh, is, is it going to be blue dominant, red dominant, green dominant? Like, and what era does this represent? Is it representing the 60s? Is it representing the early 2000s? I just want to make sure I, I like to experiment, but I also want to have some level of accuracy with my work so people can know whenever I'm having a conversation about the work, I don't need to think too hard. Like, yo, what was this about? Oh, it's this era. It's this mood. It's this essence. I want people to feel this. You know what I'm saying? Okay, okay. Nah, yeah. and so growing your brand, 
how did you get to the point of, you know, being able to reach out to these exhibits and these, you know, places to to showcase your work? So coming from music, I mean, being a musician, you work hard, you know, like you're doing shows, you're in the studio, long hours, you're always networking. It's, it's, it's like that selling mixtapes out the trunk type of vibe. You're always trying to make something work, right? And visual artists don't essentially, essentially have that like hard working essence as much. It's more like I make art when I feel um, um, provoked to. Whereas with uh, musicians, you, you just you make it when you got the time. You know, like as soon as you got the time, do it. You know. So I've uh, applied that to visual art in a sense. So hustle, like I make a lot of work in a, in a short period of time. When I do rest, I rest, I rest hard. But when it's time to make art, like I really don't hold back. I don't pull the punches when it comes to making art. Like I'm gonna I'm a make art about really tough topics and make sure that it's intentional so that when you see my work, you don't forget about it. Like. There's a lot of art. You see it. Oh, that's pretty. Forget about it. Versus when I when I make something, it's thought provoking. It may trigger you. You know, you may feel inspired. You may feel enraged. Uh, good. That means you won't forget it. And I feel like that's the thing that has like created opportunities for me now because I make art about like pressing subjects. And I also try to have fun too. I think people can see that. People see when you're serious and you know you you you're very intentional about your work, but they also could tell, yo, you was having fun. Like you was you was enjoying yourself. And I feel like that's a, a cool balance. Nah, definitely. And so comes to the the conf- controversial topic of how do you know what's the right amount to put on a on a piece that's seemingly priceless? The question is, how do you know how to price the work? Yeah. That's hard. You know, because there's the the dreamer aspect and there's the logical aspect, right? The dreamer aspect is, oh, I feel like this is worth a million dollars, so I'm putting it up for a million dollars. My question to you is, if you just put that up for a million dollars, can you sell it again? Mm. Can you sell another million dollar piece? You have an issue with that. Maybe because it was too fast or you didn't scale it right. Personally, when it comes to pricing my work, I try to be more logical because it is a business. There is a scale. When Gucci first came out, you ain't buying Gucci for crazy, crazy numbers. Gucci just came out, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or somebody say Chrome Hearts or whatever, like uh, uh, Urban Brand or whatnot. When you first come out the gate, like you can't really hit people over the head too hard in my personal opinion because you mess with your growth. If your growth is too fast, your fall will be fast. Like this past year, I would like to have moved even higher in my number, but it's not healthy for my trajectory in my career. Mm. I want my career to show growth every year. I want people to be like, oh, 2021, he was here. 2023, he was here here and you kind of can like look at my timeline and see where the worth came from not just self-proclaimed worth i'm not taking it away from anybody that wants to just price their work up just coming from personally i have felt what happens when you price your work up too fast sometimes Mm -hmm. you don't sell nothing 
copy. Now nah, that's super important. You 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 are dropping gems for them right now. Bro. So <laughs> when you being from South Florida, being from Miami specifically, you know, Art Basel, you know, being a, a visual artist, how important is that specific time frame for you as a visual artist? Uh, I I feel like in Art Basel time, um, it may not be exactly essential for you to just be showing art during Basel. I feel like you should just be out and networking and making sure you're shaking hands and meeting people and supporting people that are higher than you. Like if you have peers that are killing it, go to their shows, be present, be another one of the heads in the room. It may seem like it's insignificant, but if a hundred people support somebody like you do, they've had a successful show. Now, say maybe that person has a conversation with another individual talking about upcoming artists. They may mention you because people don't forget who support them, right? But if you're just kind of scavenging and trying to find a way to showcase work in Basel without a name and without a catalog, you may essentially be wasting your time, personally. I feel like supporting people is really good and getting in the vault and making art so you can have a catalog is is important. Not just like rushing to get the work out. You know, there there is a prototype phase, there's a, a, a beta phase, and like it's good to sit in that prototype and beta phase because you can kind of find what your palette is, find what kind of work you want to make. Sometimes you think you know what kind of work you want to make, and then that's actually not even true. The next season comes, you're making something completely different. Mm. You know, so I feel like getting comfortable and confident with yourself is really important and networking and meeting people because the conversations you have with new people in that time of the year in Basel may change your whole outlook on art and your career. You may have a conversation with somebody like me and you'd be like, oh, damn, man, I might be pricing my work a little too high too soon. You know what I'm saying? Or I may be pricing my work too damn low. Like you really need to be able to see work see how people are networking, see how artists are talking. Like, I'm, uh, I had a conversation with somebody today when I was at Citadel and a uh, dude asked me, you know, like, what's your balance? Like, how do you balance all this stuff? And I was, you know, I answered his question, but it was like, I know that that conversation helped him. So if you're in his position, why not have conversations? Talk to people. Like that's field study. Everything requires field study. You know, like if you want to, if you come into a new city and you want to open up a film production company, you might want to network first. You know what I'm saying? Like if you're, uh, you want to open up a record label in LA, you might want to go to some shows first. So if, if you're a visual artist, you might want to support other visual artists that may be at a, a higher place than you currently. So you can kind of test the temperature and see essentially what type of artist you want to be and how do you want to show up? What's your comfort level? What is something that you're willing to be uncomfortable with? Okay, okay, nah, definitely. Wow, you the the level of speaking that you are admitting is just definitely from a sense of experience, and you can definitely hear that in just the words and how you choosing to say certain things. And so, the last thing that I would say is, you know, what would you say are three essential things for people, you know, trying to get into the field that you're in right now? Like what are three specific keys of advice that you would give to them if they're trying to become a, a visual artist, essentially? Three things to consider. Uh, we can go back to the conversation about passion. Mm -hmm. 
um, if, if you're passionate about art, I feel like you'll automatically have a good time in art because you're passionate about it. If you are just getting in art because it makes a lot of money, good luck. It may not be for you. You may want to go start a nail salon or something or like a <laughs> chain of like Midas's or Jiffy Lubes or something. But if you're just talking about making money and that's all you care about, art may not be for you. Uh, that's the first thing, passion. Uh, I think that outweighs so many things because when you're passionate, you can work through downtimes. When you're passionate, you can work through mistakes. When you're passionate, you can appreciate the place that you're in, whether wherever it is. You made a million dollars, you happy. You lost a million dollars, you're still happy. You know, I know that's a really wild concept to to lose a million dollars and still be happy. But like when it's who, what's the difference between somebody having a kid? And that kid being a complete failure, but you still loving that kid. Exactly. It's essentially, it's still my kid. You get me? So like passion is like huge. Uh, second thing I would say is figure out your why. Your why is very important because now you can operate in purpose. So anytime that something's put across your desk on the table or in your lap, you know what to do with it because you know why you want to do it. Right. So like, if somebody may say that they shoot film because they want to show people the world and the different cultures of the world, you know, whoever comes to you about shooting a film or any film you ever shoot, you know that that's going to be the thing that you're going to always choose as your backbone. Mm -hmm. So your why and your purpose is like more important than a lot of things because that's what's going to lead the way, not just keep you grounded, but it's going to lead the way because you're going to be like, Damn, I don't know if I want this opportunity. Can I act in my purpose and will my why be supported here? If the answer is no, you probably shouldn't do it because you're not going to get anything from that. And it's almost going to take away from you. Right. And then the third one is at some point you do need to start making money. If it's the thing that's making you money, great. That'd be ideal. But sometimes what you are passionate about and you have a why for, you may need to produce money for that dream from something else. Mm. Not everything you love is supposed to make you money. If it's something that you, it's lucrative and you can still love it, be passionate about it and make money, phenomenal. But like, for example, like somebody who is a great poet, sometimes your words are just a heal. Maybe you don't need to sell books. Maybe the whole point of you doing poetry is just because you want these words to reach people. Now, you making that lucrative is a totally different conversation. So maybe not the third thing being making money, but do you want to make money with this thing? Because something may be a passion project. Like every business is not supposed to be a business. Some businesses were just passion projects that got taken too damn far. Mm. So, yeah. Okay. Wow. And so as y'all can already tell, the attractive mindset is completely throughout this entire conversation. And so where can people find you on social media if they're trying to look at, you know, your art pieces or just even learn a little bit more about you in general? Uh, my website is markdelmont.com, M-A-R-K-D-E-L-M-O-N-T.com. You can search the same thing on Instagram, but my at name is Art Love Trap, A-R-T-L-O-V-E-T-R-A-P. Okay, y'all heard it here first. And so 
you know, we're going to wrap this one up. As we always say, you look good. You live good. Life is good. Talk to us. We talk back. Attractive mindset. We out of here.